So my wife and I lead a life group at our house, and a couple of months ago, um, it was up to me. Usually my wife takes care of all the setup and, and getting our house ready. Uh, but it, it came to me because she was busy doing something, and I can't quite remember exactly what that was. But uh, I forgot. And so I had to work a little bit late, getting some, some stuff finished. And so I came home, and I realized as my wife is walking out the door, oh, no, I've got to set up. And it's not very long before people are going to start coming in. And so in a frantic, uh, I start setting the chairs out, making sure they're in straight lines because that's how I do it, <laughs> making sure we've got ice out and cups out and whatever food that was our responsibility out and sweeping the floor and, and doing all this stuff that my wife, because she had been busy all day, wasn't able to get to. And I was stressed because the doorbell just rang and the first family came in and I was not ready. Um, I felt like they were clearly going to see I was not prepared for them and they would get upset, and things wouldn't go well, and they'd probably throw rocks at me, and they would leave. Okay, they probably weren't going to do the rock thing, but, but I still kind of had that frustration that then I had to hide for a good while uh, because I didn't do good enough. I didn't, I didn't accomplish what I thought needed to happen. And so I don't know if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever um, felt like you weren't good enough. Maybe... Your thing was not having dinner ready for that special person or that special event. Or maybe your research, you woke up and your research paper was due today. Or um, maybe you missed a deadline for your boss at work. Or maybe you promised for the second time that the delay to, uh, to, to your customer, you know, the delay, uh, what am I trying to say? There's another delay, another delay on whatever you've promised them. What about with your relationship with God? Have you ever felt anxiety like this, you did, you're not, that you're not measuring up, that you're not doing well enough for God? Uh, maybe you are failing in an area of your life over and over, and you just know that you are not meeting God's expectations. Or maybe you don't pray enough or read the Bible enough, and you just know that God is disappointed in you. Or maybe you are failing as a husband, or as a parent, or just as a human being in general, and you just know that you have almost used up all that grace that God has set aside for you, and it's only a matter of a couple more days, a couple more mess-ups before you've, all, you've used it all up, and God turns his back, decides, I'm not wasting my time with this person anymore. Have you ever felt that before? No? <coughs> well, I have. I have felt that before. Excuse me. <coughs> well, the good news is that you don't have to feel this way. You don't have to feel like your relationship with God is about to run out of grace, like he is watching you to fail, so let's take a look at our passage and dig into it a little bit. Turn with me to Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, if you are not there, and let's talk about it. Uh, well, before I do that, let me, let me just uh, say a couple more things. Scott has been leading us through this book of Ephesians so far, and last week he talked about God, the Father's role in our salvation. 
We talked about verses three through six and about how God has chosen us. And so this morning, we are talking about Jesus' role, God the Son's role, and what he does uh, as part of that. And so if you were not here the past Sunday or two, let me give you a few bits of context for Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter written by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul established the Ephesian church in a major Greek city called Ephesus in A.D. 53 on one of his missionary journeys through that area. And before he wrote this letter, at one point, he was there in Ephesus teaching them for three years. He taught them for three years all of this stuff that he is writing about. Because this letter is not a letter of of confronting sin or something wrong. It's just an encouragement letter and a letter of basically review. We're going to review some of these truths that that I've been teaching you for the past three years or who knows how long it was. Um, I'm sure somebody knows how long it was since he was there, but I don't. So let's pick it up in verse 7 and see what we can learn from Paul. In him... In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So in Jesus, we have redemption. What does redemption mean? Like we redeem coupons. And people say things like, Jesus saves. So is that what he's talking about? Like, making salvation more affordable, making salvation easier to attain. No, he's not talking about coupons, and I'm really glad he's not talking about coupons. But he's talking about something a bit more serious here. Paul is talking to the Ephesians who are citizens of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, uh, redemption brings slavery to mind. Maybe not for everybody, but definitely the slaves. Um, You see, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and PBS says this about the slaves in Rome. Slaves looked so similar to Roman citizens that the Senate once considered a plan to make them wear special clothing so that they could be identified at a glance. The idea was rejected because the Senate feared that if slaves saw how many of them were working in Rome, they might be tempted to join forces and rebel. There were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire. Another aspect of, the Roman, of Roman slavery besides their number was the fact that they could be redeemed. For the right price, a slave could be bought and then just transferred ownership, or they could let them go. They could free them. A slave could even, I don't know exactly how this works, but pay for their own slavery, again, if, or for their own freedom, their own redemption. Again, if the price was right. So what Paul is bringing to the Ephesian mind is the life-changing practice of redeeming slaves. So when they hear, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, they hear, as slaves, we have a new master, one who loves us so much that he was willing to pay for us with his own life, with his own blood. But it doesn't stop here. To better understand what Paul is thinking about, uh, turn with me. Actually, don't turn. I'll just read it for you. How about that? Romans 6. Because we're not going to spend much time there, so I'll just read it for you. Romans 6, 17 and 18. Paul expounds a little bit more on this 
on this uh, slavery idea. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Friends, without Christ, we, we are the slaves. We are slaves to sin. We are slaves to our own desires. And that sin, that master, brings eternal death. But now we have been bought with the blood of Jesus, and we can live as slaves to righteousness, which brings eternal life. Okay, so let's keep moving. Back to Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, or in Jesus, we have redemption from slavery to sin through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So I was thinking about this um, according to his riches and this lavish, and I was trying to think, how can I make that a picture for you? So I wrote a story, and I probably will win an award for this, but I wanted to read it to you became, before I became famous. Uh, so let me, let me read my short story that I wrote. So picture a guy who is just redeemed from slavery, and he hasn't found a place to live yet. He does what he can to find shelter, but his best efforts look like a blanket to keep him warm. Then as he's adjusting his blanket and feeling pretty good about how well his blanket is keeping his legs warm, a well-dressed man walks up and says, a house has been provided for you. Here is a formal letter with the deed. Walk with me and I'll take you there. The previous slave had nothing to lose, so he followed. After a long walk, they turned down a dirt road that was winding through the woods. The previous slave was thinking to himself, I wonder if it's a shack or an apartment on the roof or maybe even a small cabin. Ha, nobody is that generous. It's probably just a shack. But still, that's lovely. That's way better than my blanket. Soon the ex-slave lays his eyes on the biggest house he's ever seen, something like the Biltmore Estate. And he thinks to himself, wow, this guy has a huge house. My shack is probably in the back. The well-dressed man escorts him through the front door of the large house, and he hands the ex-slave the deed, the letter, and the keys. And he says, welcome home. I hope you enjoy this house that I've built for you. Fill it with friends and family. Guys, this is the grace that God offers us, this massive mansion of grace. We are expecting grace that barely meets our needs. At least my idea of grace, my, if I had to ask God, can I have some grace, it would be enough to get me out of hell. What more could I ask for? Like, that would be good enough for me. But that's the shack. That I, that I think I deserve. But what God actually gives us is so much grander, so much larger than we expect. What God has for us is a lavish, grand mansion ready for us to enjoy, ready for us to share with others, ready for us to extend to friends and family, inviting them to be a part of it. Wasn't that a good story? 
Like I said, I'm going to get an award for that probably. <laughs> Thank you. I'll sign autographs later over here on something. I don't know what I have to sign on. All right, back to our verse. Back to our verse. So Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption from slavery of sin. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What wisdom and insight is Paul referring to? It's simple, all of it. It says right there, all, all wisdom and insight. It's really, so God has every wisdom and insight. He has all the wisdom and insight. He has every kind of wisdom and insight. So what this means is that God did not redeem us out of slavery from sin with only a partial understanding of you or a partial understanding of his plan. He knows your heart. He knows your failings. <clears throat> but he chose you anyway, as Scott very well put it last week. He chose you anyway. And with that wisdom and insight, he doesn't just give you enough grace to get by. He lavishes you with it in full knowledge, in full understanding of who you are and what you do and what you don't do. You will never fail beyond his insight into you. And you will never fail beyond his grace. While we expect a shack, because that is more than what we deserve. The shack is more than what we deserve. We know it. And God knows it. But instead, he lavishly gives us a mansion of grace. Okay, let's keep moving. You might be tired of me reading these verses, but it's on purpose. Let's get these verses stuck in our heads. Let's read it again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So, so far, Paul has been talking about God's plan of redemption, his, his grace for us. Um, so now in verse 9 and 10, it seems like Paul's talking about mysteries in God's will and plan for fullness of time and something, something, heaven and earth. Whoa, Paul, slow down. All of a sudden, you jump to Revelation or something. Kind of lost track here. But no, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't jumped uh, topics. He's still talking, even though it might not seem so, about grace and about God's plan. So remember, Paul's in re review mode here. Paul is just hopping from doctrine to doctrine, and, he, and he's got a line that he's drawing. And the Ephesians learned from him for three years all these things. So again, it's just, it's just review mode. He is skimming across all these different topics. So let's see if we can at least follow him a little bit. Uh, there's no way that we can dive into everything Paul says here. Each phrase in between the commas could be its own sermon, could be its own series. So we're not diving deep here. We got to skim. Let's talk about what Paul calls the mystery of his will. Paul likes talking about mysteries. He likes talking about the mysteries of God. Throughout his writings, Paul refers to the mystery of Christ, 
the mystery of marriage, the mystery hidden for ages, the mystery of the gospel, God's mystery, the mystery of the faith, the mystery of godliness. And now here, Paul talks about the mystery of his will. So what is Paul talking about? Well, when Paul says mystery, what he's referring to is, a mystery is something that has been revealed to us now that was previously concealed by God. And maybe that was, uh, it could have been even just a partial concealing, but something that has been revealed to us now that was previously concealed by God. And what's cool about almost all the times that Paul talks about a mystery, it has some connection to Christ and the gospel and our salvation plan, and this time isn't any different. And what's great about this reference to one of the mysteries of God is Paul clearly spells it out just a little bit later. I don't even have to turn the, the page in my Bible. In Ephesians 3.6, Paul says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here the mystery is that the, is the unexpected, the totally unexpected inclusion of Gentiles into God's people. The Jews totally blindsided by this. They thought they were the chosen people of God, that they were better than every other nation, and that the Gentiles were excluded. They took pride in this belief. And last week, Scott did a great job taking us to Deuteronomy, showing us that God chose Israel because of himself, not because of any greatness within Israel. So going back to our verse, our verses for this morning, we can take what this mystery means, we can plug it in and kind of get a better taste, better understanding of what's going on here. All right, making known to us the mystery of his will, that the Gentiles will be a part of God's family and promises, not just the Jews, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. The reason that the Gentiles are included in the redemption and the lavish grace of God is because it has been God's purpose and plan since the beginning. Since the beginning, God had planned for the fullness of time to include all nations. When Paul became a Christian, he went back and he restudied the scriptures and he restudied the scriptures and he restudied the scriptures. And the reason why this mystery now was revealed to him was because he came across scriptures like this, Genesis 22:18. And through your offspring, talking to Abraham, the father of Israel, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And verses like Psalm 86, 9, all the nations you have made will come and bow before you, O Lord, and they will glorify your name. And verses like Isaiah 56, 1 through 3, be honest and fair. Soon I will come to save you. My saving power will be seen everywhere on earth. I will bless everyone who respects the Sabbath and refuses to do wrong. 
foreigners who worship me must not say the Lord won't let us be a part of his people. And this mystery that we now clearly see carries on with the followers of Jesus. The Apostle John ultimately writes in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, which is Jesus here, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, we can see throughout the Bible from sin entering creation to the coming Messiah and beyond, that God has made a promise that he will restore all heaven and earth, that he will restore fallen man, that he will unite all things in Christ, with Christ, because of Christ. And we get to be a small part of that. Your salvation, your Relationship with God is just a small part of God restoring his creation, redeeming his creation, bringing his creation back from its fallen state to what he wanted it to be. And we get to be a small part of that. That's pretty cool. Friends, when we understand our salvation is part of God's grander plan, to restore all creation in Christ. Our awe for God's grace grows. Our understanding of his grace grows. The accuracy of what we see to be his grace grows. And when we better realize the size of the grace that we are given because of Christ, you know what we can do? We can rest. We can relax. We don't have to be so worried that it's my work and my effort that is making God's plan happen in myself and those around me. So back to my life group anxiety. From the beginning, uh, from the beginning of the sermon, after my frantic time of getting things ready and getting things together, and me trying to hide that, fright, that frustration and pretend that I was the perfect leader, you know, for a little bit. <laughs> we ate together, and we laughed together, and we had a great night of discussing God, and we discussed scripture, and we discussed the sermon together, we prayed together, and did you know that everything worked out fine? <laughs> everything was fine. It was just fine. And I was reminded in that moment that the success of our life group does not depend on the chairs being straight as much as I would hope that would be the case. (laughs) And it doesn't depend on me getting the food and the drinks and the ice and the floor swept and all that stuff, but depends on the fact that we were unified around the mission of Christ. We were unified around the mission of knowing God more, of knowing his word deeper, And occasionally when I'm feeling that anxiety rise up again, I just remind myself, it's not my my thing. Like, it's God's grace. It's God's plan. It's God's effort. 
It's God's knowledge. It's God's creation. It's God's salvation of which he chose me to be a part. When we understand our salvation as part of God's grander plan of restoring all heaven and earth and restoring his children to himself, then our awe for God's grace grows. Our understanding of God's grace grows. And we can rest. We can rest in that. Friends, pray with me. God, we praise you for your plan that you are working out to redeem your creation, to redeem your people through Jesus. God, we praise you for the grand size of your grace and that we cannot fail outside of it, that we cannot fail so much that we run out of it. Thank you, God, for offering us uh, salvation and freedom from, from the slavery, from being bound to sin and to ultimately eternal death and hell. Thank you that you offer us life in you. We praise your name. We worship you because you're holy, because you deserve it. Thank you for giving us more than a shack. Help us to invite our friends and our family to be a part of your grace. We love you, God.